The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Hey, we're back. Episode 35. Wow. Yeah. I feel like we should throw a party. I know. I'm excited about it. We'll throw a party at 40. <laughs> sure. But we're back and we're talking about business exits. It's one of our favorite topics here at Monument. We love talking with business owners. We love working with them. So we have a fantastic guest on today. His name is Kevin DeSanto. He is the founder and managing director of Kips DeSanto, an investment bank focused on helping companies in the technology space and aerospace and defense sectors. He has broad experience providing advisory services to companies going through a merger or acquisition, but he primarily works with business owners who are looking to sell. So if that sounds like you or maybe you in the future, this is definitely the episode for you. And he's seen a lot over the course of his career. So he's sharing some of the biggest mistakes and lessons learned that he's observed when it comes to selling a business. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that we kind of started our businesses at the same time, which is actually, I think, how we originally met was we're within 12 months of each other starting. I think it was like, hey, I think we're sort of like entrepreneur buddies. We should meet each other. And then yeah, here some we are. Good common friends and a crazy time too, really. In you know, 2008. The late aughts, global financial crisis and everything else happening around us. That's funny because really when, I, when I tell people who are budding entrepreneurs, I said, listen, people like Kevin and I, we nailed it. We started a financial service, something <laughs> for, in 2008, like 2007, 2008. It was like, we're the perfect timing. It was so fantastic. What a heyday that I was. I think if you can survive the first <laughs> right. few years in general, but with that right. on top of it, it's even better. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and with no impact to my personal credit score, which was fantastic for me also. But yeah, thanks for coming in and doing this. this is great. Also worth noting is that we're doing this live in our podcast studio, which is we're doing more and more of them. Which yeah, is always fun. Great. So Kevin, Walk us through what you would say is the perfect process and timeline for a business sale transaction. Like, what does it look like? And if everything's going smoothly, what do the steps look like? And what is the business owner doing from start to finish all along the way? I would take that and really break it into two primary pieces. And they're both big and a bit overwhelming. The first piece of it being the months or years leading up to the decision to want to be in a process to sell or merge or raise outside capital for a business. When I think about those, there's really a lot of very distinct elements to them, but a lot of it is about preparation. And so when we go and we start building a relationship with a company and really trying to understand what their goals and objectives are as they move forward, we're trying to get them to think about value. And a lot of owners, a lot of businesses, a lot of management teams really don't think about value. They think about operations. They really think about what's going on day to day. What are the types of things that they have to do to get through the week, to get through a month, to get through a year? What are the planning cycles? What are the types of things that 
you're doing on the HR front? What are the types of things that you're doing with your customers, your product, et cetera? And so businesses become consumed by the actual day-to-day operations of a business. And we try to take it and pull it back up and really get management team or shareholders or boards of director to think about their business from a shareholder vantage point or from a value vantage point. And so there's a lot of time and a lot of conversations that go on even before you get to that process to help folks think about what they're trying to accomplish. Do they want to run a business for 20 years that has great cash flow and great opportunities for their team? Or do they want to run and build a business for five years or seven years and ultimately look for liquidity in that process? And so having those conversations early helps us figure out what direction we're going to go and then really whether or not a process is going to be something that does make sense to go through. And part of the reason that I characterize it that way is because that process that you asked really was at the core of your question is something that takes six to nine months to accomplish and is probably one of the more challenging business events or obviously it's a transaction in it by nature, but it's really one of the most monumental events you'll go through in your life if you're the business owner. And so that six to nine months can be much more effective if you've done a lot of planning and talking about these things in those years leading up to it. When we go through a process with the company, that six to nine months is a series of both emotional and actual physical experiences. You have to go in and you have to make a decision to go through this. And I often talk about it with our clients as it's a fourth job for most people. They have families, they have interests outside of their business, they have to run their business and then they have to do this, it really takes a lot. You have to be ready for that. You have to be prepared. You have to have the right team involved in it. And you have to have made the decision to embark on that process for the right reasons. And so we'll talk a lot about objectives and priorities and what do you want to accomplish? Was this an emotional decision because you've had a tough year? Or is this something that you've been planning for for the last four or five years? It's the right time. It's the right inflection point for the business. So good planning, good preparation leads to a process that is going to ultimately be more successful than if you don't have the planning on the front end. The preparation, once you get into the process, is about having the right story, having the right strategic positioning, having the right messaging that's going to resonate with the broadest set of buyers or investors. Having that story is oftentimes not something companies do. You think about your business when it comes to selling your product or your services or engaging with a customer or a client. When you're thinking about going through a process of potentially selling your business or bringing an outside investor in, you have to think about your business as an actual full scope life cycle business, not just a capability or a solution. It's a very different way of thinking. It's a very different way of articulating your story. And it's often one that our clients have never done before because they don't think like shareholders or they don't think in terms of value when they're out there. And so we really work that hard up front to get the right positioning. You're probably trying to get them to frame their thinking in terms of like, you have a target market for your goods or your services, but now you have another target market, which is the acquirer or the counterparty to the transaction. And that's a completely different marketing messaging perspective on things. I never thought about that. Yeah, totally different lens to look at something through. And so we get people to really focus on that. We build financial forecasts that are sophisticated, kind of bottoms up, line by line, future projections of the business so that 
buyers and investors can get a good feel for what we anticipate coming down the pike over the years. And that's really how most people value a business. It's based on what the future state is going to be. And for most of the companies that we work with across aerospace, defense, government, technology, they end up being businesses that are acquired or invested in because they are major growth companies. And that's really, at the end of the day, what we're trying to position or what we're trying to get that financial forecast to articulate. Once we've established all of that, that's a month or two, sometimes a little bit longer on the front end of the process. Then we get out and really the middle two or three months is finding the buyers and investors that are interested in these types of businesses, getting the information into their hands, getting them to tell us what they think the value of the business is, and then taking a step back with our clients and saying, those priorities and objectives that we talked about earlier, does it hit those? Is it right? Is this what you were thinking? Is this what you were hoping for? Is this what makes sense for you based on the time and effort and energy and everything else that you've invested in the business to get to this point in time? And if we find that there's one or two or three that are worthwhile, then we typically run the back third of the process through due diligence and negotiating legal agreements and really organizing around a potential transaction, the closing, all the mechanics that are involved in that. Each of those is pretty distinct. And I mentioned earlier emotion. On the front end, it's a lot of work and reshaping your business, but there's not a lot of pressure. In that middle stage, I've heard it characterized as almost like an eighth grade dance. You're not sure if anybody's going to ask you to dance. Right. You're not sure you know, where, if it's going to work out or not. And there's this trepidation in going in. And what if nobody shows up? What if nobody invites me? What if nobody likes our business in there? And so there's lots of anxieties that tend to pop up in that time. And then that back third is really interesting because it's a very complex framework of legal agreements and business deals that really shape this. It's not just the price. And that tends to be a bit overwhelming because you've never thought about it. Oh, I get paid, but I also have to indemnify or basically back up any risk that I've created prior to selling the business. And so maybe it's not just getting the purchase price. It might be the purchase price less something. I didn't think about that. That wasn't part of my calculus. That's why they should probably be talking to you all along the way to understand, all right, net proceeds, what does that mean? How does that affect my family? Where do I go? And so there's a lot that comes in that tail end because these are complex concepts. The one that always jumps out at me is tax. Most people just kind of get their taxes done on an annual basis. You don't think too much about it. But when you go through these transactions, it's incredible how complex tax is as an issue. And learning that on the fly while you're trying to sell the business or bring in an investor, talking to your employees, thinking about the impact on your customers can be pretty daunting. And it ends up being an entirely different and unique experience on that back third, learning and hopefully enjoying, I'd say, not <laughs> generally, but some of our clients will get there and they'll say, that was really fun. I did learn a lot, but it's usually in the after action report, not during that process that they get there. Yeah. I mean, I listening to you and you brought up, they should be talking to Monument. I think about one client that I worked with as a financial planner, helping them doing the work in advance modeling their planning scenario and looking at what if you sold your business for X dollar amount, Y dollar amount, and Z dollar amount. So that when it came that there was an offer on the table, they didn't have to wonder, is this going to be enough to be able to do everything else that I want to do? Is this the right offer? To use your analogy, is this the right date to take to the dance? So that they could feel really confident going through that process that, yeah, okay, there's an offer on the table. It's this much. Yeah, let's 
except done, sold, because I know that that's going to be able to help me do everything else that I want to do. So I think that's really interesting that I think when it comes to maybe valuations, valuations is something maybe where you tell me that I think you could have a valuation work done and you could identify some things and you could then clean up your business, clean up your books, improve something before then you go back to the market. But it sounds like with the sale process that you're talking about is that it's kind of like once you decide to do it, you're in it. That would be our recommendation that you do this once Once. and that's it. The the scarlet letter of, hey, I've been through this. I've talked to a lot of people. It's not working out. Think about how much time and effort and energy and fees are expended on that process. And if people don't believe that they're going to get to a closed transaction, it's hard for them to invest that amount of time and energy and effort and fees into the deal. And so if something hasn't gone right in a previous process, it's a red flag, it's a question, it's a topic of discussion. And so we try to think about things based on the life cycle of the business. When is the business at its peak or close to its peak in terms of performance under your leadership or under your ownership? And if we can find that upward trajectory, typically we'll be able to put a deal together that is going to be representative of the value of the business or better. Now, if we said we can get you $10 and that's what we get. And you said, well, I was looking for 20. That's really when that conversation that you're talking about is super important. Or my friend just got 15. So what's up? That's right. And just having good expectations or healthy expectations going in is a big part of being successful in this. And again, get back to that comment that I made earlier, breaking it up into two pieces. A lot of the planning and discussions in the beginning, before you get into that process are about level setting, about trying to help provide healthy expectations, about trying to get people to be mindful of what the ultimate value of the business is or what the market is typically likely to yield in that scenario. And so that's something that's hard for entrepreneurs to do. We talked about us being entrepreneurs, accepting that there's an ultimate value to your business. And it's probably never what you think it should be because you live it and breathe it every day. But then if the market comes back and dictates that it's a certain range of value, that's the reality of what we're dealing with. And we do see situations where at the end of it, people say, you know what? It's just not enough. I was thinking that it was 20. I knew you told me 10, but really after I pay all of my fees for my advisors and give some away to my management team and then pay taxes on the remaining amount, I'm really only getting five. That's just not what I thought. That's not what it was. And again, it's good to have a lot of these conversations before you get there because you can expose a lot of the details, a lot of the nuances, a lot of the things that people don't often think about when they're going through this. And I appreciate the subliminal messaging back a few minutes ago when you called it a monumental event. So I love it. That was fantastic. <laughs> but, but yeah, I've got to imagine that people will look at this and just say, after everything's paid, it just doesn't change my life. And that's probably one of those emotional things that you talk about. And even if it does change your life, maybe it's not enough or maybe it's not what you anticipated or you mentioned your neighbor or a lot goes Or I'm in my fifties. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? Well, it's all I, that I think that's yeah. a huge one. It is I, a huge I, one. And a lot of the conversations that I try to have with people in that first part before we get into the process is, well, why? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And it's not always the end of the road. It can be, and that can be a choice, but particularly in today's market, where private equity investors are such a big part of the environment that we work in with prospective buyers and investors, you can find that this is just an inflection point, not the end of the road. And I think that's one of the things that our clients have really found to be 
exciting is maybe I don't need to figure out exactly what I am going to do in my late fifties after I get through this, because I can go for the next five years and be a part of this business in a way that's unique and different compared to what I have been. And that's really one of the things that we've seen a lot of our clients get really comfortable and excited about that. And others just want to be done. That's certainly a place to be and maybe buy a farm and go and relax or maybe (laughs) go and surf the beaches of Costa Rica or whatever the case might be. But I worry about it. I think about, gosh, hopefully life is long and <laughs> this is, right, right. you want to be relevant and engaged. And when you have a business, it tends to be there every waking moment and you don't have to try. But to then not have it and go and try to be relevant or try to get engaged or try to build out your ecosystem can be really daunting, especially if you've been running that business for 10, 20, 30 years through most of your adult life. Those are your connections. That's your identity. And we encourage people to think about that before we get into the process. We're not trained psychologists or psychiatrists <laughs> or any of that, but it sometimes I don't know. I've got like some on the job training. I don't know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or at least know the right questions to ask. Right. I don't know that I give or could give great <laughs> advice on that. Front. Every little bit helps. So you mentioned red flags earlier. Can you talk through what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen people make who are selling or looking to sell their business? A couple key thoughts. If you're going to work with an advisor like us, really full, open, just transparent conversations around the history and the future of the business. Being surprised, either positively or negatively, typically impacts the success or the expected probability of closing a transaction. So if you're on the verge of winning a $100 million contract, we probably don't want to just start marching down a path of trying to find a buyer and investor for the business because if we don't get the timing right, you're not going to be happy with the outcome because of the expectations on that contract, just as an example on the positive side. On the negative side or on the risk side of things, internally, there's lots of things that happen over the life of a business. Contracts or customer-client relationships, the HR side of things, the legal side of things. Companies are living, breathing, very difficult to run and manage, very difficult to keep up with, oftentimes very difficult to document and to keep in an organized fashion. We see surprises that have an impact on deals all the time. We can solve them many times, but it takes additional time to solve those problems. And time is the enemy of all deals is the cliche or the way people think about what your job is. Move quickly. Keep it in that six to nine month window. But there are some problems we can't fix. If a customer is not happy and it's a material portion of your business, and we don't find that out until the buyer goes and talks to that customer on the last day of due diligence, we will have probably wasted six to nine months of our lives and yours trying to put that transaction together. We should know that. We should know exactly what's been happening, why it's been happening, what the fix might be, what the opportunities can be as a result of that. And so it's not any one thing typically. It's usually a series of surprises or disclosures that occur over time that people say, we probably should have known about that. Now I'm worried that there might be more. Now I have my antennas up. Now I'm concerned that the culture of the organization is to be closed door or to not be transparent, not deal with things in the sort of moment. And that's probably the biggest issue that we see is when you build up that 
reputation in front of the buyer or the investor, it really is hard for people to get comfortable doing a deal in that setting. And so I would say just really encouraging people up front to just be completely open and transparent. We can solve almost all of them, either timing the transaction or working while we're going through the transaction. So we actually put a lot of time and effort on the front end of that six to nine month process to do due diligence on our clients. And so many people will wait to put a data room together, which is the DNA of the business and documentation. They'll wait to do that until they have a buyer. We really do that at the beginning because we want to get a sense for what's out there. We want your legal counsel to get a sense for what's out there. We want to know and disclose things that might be a challenge downstream or get working on fixing them. A great example, just going back to some of the tax stuff that I mentioned earlier, when you incorporated your business and you made an election to be a certain type of entity and then you filed your taxes and you've made dividends or distributions to your shareholders or to your unit or holders or members over time, most companies don't always get that right. And it's not that it's terminal or that it can't be recovered from, but it often takes time to file the right paperwork to get the right responses and to kind of move into a position where the issue has been resolved. And so those are the kinds of things that we're on the lookout for is can we get those solved before we get in front of somebody? That's great. I love the part about disclosing it up front because you didn't graduate from college and start Kips DeSanto, right? I mean, like, so you've been in business for 16 years, but there's many, many years before that too. And you and everybody that is involved in a deal, deal attorneys, counterparty people are all very sophisticated people. So if there's something being swept under the bed, it's coming out. It's coming out. There's I, I say that all so- the time. Too much sophistication there. And think about when we open a data room to a prospective buyer for a client, they have a law firm and that law firm will have 10, 12, 15 people involved. They're all subject matter experts in their various fields from benefits to contracts to HR in general. And you'll have consultants that come in that help guide a buyer through a process. And then the buyer will have all of their subject matter experts in there. We'll end up with 50, 60, 70 people doing due diligence on a client. And for anything to just slip through the cracks there is a pretty tough thing to think about. It's pretty hard to imagine that that's actually the case. And then there's different interpretations of things. There's different interpretations of the issues that come up, or we may view something one way and be perfectly right, and a buyer might think of it another way and be perfectly right. And then having to work through and sort of reconcile those differences. But if we don't know about it on the front end, we sort of get caught in the buyer's view and it's very difficult to help manage them off of that. Again, to your point, it's just hard to imagine that it's not going to come out if we're looking at every single document that's ever been produced by the company over the course of a 60-day due diligence process with 50, 60, 70 people involved. Okay, so let's say you successfully make your way through due diligence. You cover that hurdle and now you are at the stage where you're selling your business and you have an offer on the table. Typically, from what I've seen, there there can be a few different ways that a business owner could receive proceeds from a sale. You could be looking at, I'm just going to give you straight cash, the entire amount up front. And you could be looking at something like a holdback, an earnout, or even a deferred payment like a promissory note. So can you just start by explaining what those different options mean? Transaction structures are complex. They have many different facets to them. 
and that's even before we get into some of the components that you were talking about. I would think of the progression as cash is king. And that's typically where most people are starting when they come into this. If I can get a cash purchase price all paid at closing in the transaction, that's really, that's the holy grail. That's the top of the priority list or top of the objectives. Yeah, I had six figures of student loan debt for graduate school to learn cash is king. Yeah. So <laughs> save everybody. Here we are, Monument Wealth Management, saving everybody a hundred grand. Thank yeah. you. There you go. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And it is a very specific experience after that. So each company is different. Each buyer is different and coming together around the different layers of what that purchase price is paid in or as is very unique and specific to the individual situation. Earnouts are something that everybody talks about when doing M&A transactions. The concept of an earnout is, I would say, used relatively consistently across transactions. Typically, it's done because that's the style and approach that a buyer wants to use to buy companies in order to manage risk post-transaction. Makes sense. Typically, you'll see a company come along that has some risk or some milestones that are uncertain in the future, and an earnout can be used to manage the risk of the company's performance in that way. And then there's the upside scenario where the leadership team, the shareholders believe that they're going to deliver on something that's much greater than where they are today. And they would like to get additional proceeds if they hit milestones that are above and beyond where they sit today. And so earnouts are a complex issue because they can come at you from different reasons or different rationale. And that is something that we try to work to manage out of as many transaction structures as possible. You try to work the earnout out of it. To not have it okay. because of the complexity of running a business post-transaction and actually achieving that. I don't know what the empirical studies would say about how many are achieved or not achieved, but anytime you give control up, you ultimately impact whether or not you can drive success there. And so that's just a fundamental change that occurs when you sell the company. And so having that trust and faith that everything's going to be organized on the back end to allow you to achieve the financial performance that's going to achieve those earnouts is a bit of a leap of faith. It can be done. It can be very successful. The company can do exceptionally well. But if we can manage that out, we'd like to. Then you get into, and I'll use private equity transactions as an example, what I would characterize as seller financing, where if we're doing the $10 example that we had earlier, where the buyer might come to the table with $75 or $7.50, and they're asking the seller to come up with $2.50 to complete the transaction. That could be in the form of a seller note. So think of it as a loan effectively into the transaction. That might be interest-bearing. It might be paid out over a handful of years, it can look very much like what you might get in a promissory note or a loan from a bank. It could also be in retained ownership. You'll often hear this called rollover equity or reinvestment in the business. And so in that $10 scenario, you may get $7.50 and put that in the bank after fees and taxes, who knows what it gets to. And then you still own $2.50 worth of equity in the business on a go-forward basis. This is a very common model for private equity groups to use because it allows you to obviously not have to come up with 100% of the financing. It keeps that selling leadership team or ownership team engaged in the business. 
And then it creates the proverbial second bite at the apple for the folks that sold. And so if you just think about this over the longer term, your 750 goes in the bank, you do what you do with it here at Monument, and then the 250 might become five or 750 or 10 on its own if the business is built and expands the way that that private equity group expects it to. And so if you take a step back, then you may have gotten 750 plus 10. And even though you sold the business for $10 million in the first place, you could end up with $17.50 on the back end in that scenario. And so that's given private equity has become such a big part of M&A really in all markets and industries. That's a pretty common opportunity or option for clients today. And so you start off with cash is king, but then you come back to, well, maybe there's ways that we can monetize the asset multiple times or to be a partner with somebody that's very sophisticated and looking to build significant value. And that's a lot of the learning that our clients go through as part of the process. They are analyzing and evaluating the risk of that 250 because that 250 could go to zero. Absolutely. So how often do the non-upfront cash options work out? The holdout, the earnout, the deferred payment? Like how often do you not see them work out the way as planned? It's for the really seller? difficult to say. There's no good reason for it. Just it's whether or not the company performs. There's right. so many factors there. And I think people want to blame the buyer or the investor, but who knows what has changed or what has happened along the way. I'd say we generally feel like we're very successful at positioning a client to get that earnout. We put and work hard to structure things but every in now the and purchase then. agreement, but sometimes you lose a contract. Sometimes you don't win the contract you expected. Sometimes the leadership team doesn't have the same success. Maybe the market changes and the budget dynamics change on you and you weren't anticipating that. It's a big part of why we go through that preparation on the front end to build a forecast model that we have conviction around because we want to set the right targets and we want to make sure that we're getting there. And so it's really hard to say if what that might be, is it 50% or 75%? I think it's more difficult to really understand that. It almost gets down to the specifics of how you structured it. Sometimes you might have a contingent payment that's based on one event. And that one event, if you don't win it, you might not care. If right. you win it, it might be good. And so it's not always negative. It could just be that it's kind of your baseline assumption and you had an opportunity to get something more substantial there. How often do you see it an either or? Just a quick scenario. A buyer comes to a seller and says, you can have $7.50 or you can have $7.50 plus $2.50, your choice. Does it ever materialize like that? Yeah, it can. I think some of it might be, if I was going to think about that, scenario, if I was the buyer, I might offer you $9 all cash at close okay, or $10 split $750-250. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm trying to think about, okay, how does the financing work? What is the cost of capital in that situation? How incentivized is the leadership team if they are fully cashed out? And so I might pay less because I'm not getting that seller financing or that participation on a go forward basis. I don't think you would offer 10 either way. Because we yeah, go okay. back to our comment, cash is king. I think right. that's where most people would really think about it. But holding my ignorance of deal transaction size as a constant for a second, X and Y, how often do you see the choice actually presented? Like forget the dollar. The All seven, the time. All now. the time. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So this is part of the fascinating journey that we go yeah. through with a client is, okay, I want to sell. I want to be out. I want to go. And then you're looking at this and you're saying, geez, I, this is awesome. I can be the chairman of the business. I could be the 
chief strategy officer of the business and have 75% liquidity and a chance at something big and be a part of more M&A transactions and working with sophisticated partners and learning what it's like to be on a real board and traveling the country or the world to be a part of this growing, expanding business. And some people go to that, get to that stage and say, no way, that's scary. I don't want that. I'm not at a point in my life where I have that, or my family wouldn't be supportive of that. And so people get there in different ways, but I think almost always we're finding that we can get the various options produced for our client. And when you think about an investment banker, our job is to really create options and allow you to make a decision in a comfortable setting with as much transparency or visibility as possible. And that's part of our thinking is you want milestones and you want all of the options presented at the same time. So you have that complete site picture and making a decision. If we give you one option today and it was the 257.50 and then we gave you the nine a week from now and then we came in with a different one a week after that, you'd say, well, now that I know all three, I probably wanted the first one. And we just turned down the first one because we didn't know the other two were coming. And that's how we've actually interacted. So our observation of that side of the deal is like you, and when we have more runway to work with a client on this, we help clients evaluate that, hey, if these are the goals and objectives for the post-tax money that you're going to get, and you can achieve all those goals and objectives without the earnout, or hey, you can't reach those goals and objectives unless you take the earnout and that materializes, we have been framing discussions with people that come to us ahead of a transaction and say, we can help you figure out which deal to take, or at least frame the decision in terms of actual analysis from your goals and objectives. What's the money for, we like to say. And if the money that comes out of it is the $9 walk away number that you used, you say like, well, if your goal is to sell the business and retire, why would you take the earnout and work for three more years if the $9 covers everything you ever want to do with the money? So anyway, it's just kind of interesting how it all comes back around. I know. And then it's typically you go for more money. (laughs) (laughs) No matter what, how we get there, no matter what we've said, you just keep taking those at bats all the way. I mean, I think that's just human nature. As you get there, you just never feel like it's enough and you never want to give up on opportunity. Although we've seen people walk away from it. We've seen people say, Well, that's where the planning feels fine, where you can say, you're like, okay, I do want to take the gamble that with the earnout, like, and maybe that might work, but I know from the planning work that if the earnout goes to crap and I only get the $7.50, I'm totally still fine and that's gravy. And I'm still going to have a problem with passing on this crazy wealth to my kids and that's a whole other topic to yeah. discuss. There is a point where I think in my perspective where people sell their business for so much money and then they're in like a whole different wave of problem of like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to spoil my kids. I don't want them to feel like they don't have to work and have a work ethic and or what if I want to start talking about very serious charitable giving? Like it spawns its own conversations and challenges, even with the dollar amount being really high. Because we've looked at clients and said, do you understand that given your age and life expectancy and your kid's age and life expectancy, that if you were to live until 92 or something like that, actual real table life, do you realize that your kids are walking away with a nine figure net worth if you just assume a growth rate of 6% a year? I mean, they just don't even see that sometimes. But I do want to ask a question, though, about, because you mentioned before about the different people of the team. Talk to me about the role of the M&A attorney and what role they play in the transaction and how they work with the investment banker. Because if you think about it like a triangle, they are a component of this deal. Maybe not in the beginning, but they always enter the picture. Absolutely. A super important partner in all of this for us and for the client. 
I look at it as our job is to maximize the value of the business and legal counsel or your lawyer, their job is to minimize the risk associated with that value or the proceeds that you get there. And so that's as important as getting the money in my mind. I think of them as 50-50. Both should be at the top of the list. And having an experienced lawyer who understands transaction structures and knows how to work within that type of agreement is really, really important. And there's a lot of great folks in that world, especially in the DC area that we work with that have a ton of transaction experience. And it's just night and day from folks who haven't been through it before. The deal team for us is really, think of it in five pieces. First and foremost, it's the company. And having the right members of that company leadership team or transaction team is super critical. It's probably not 20 people, but three, four, five people who are really capable of not only running the business on a day-to-day basis, but turning around and focusing on this. You really want a group of people that's incentivized and excited about going through this, even though it may be daunting and even though the change may be inevitable, you really just want that team internally so that you can get the right preparation done. The second piece of it is, I would characterize as you guys bringing your wealth management, your family planning, your estate planning into the mix early is really critical. The exact point that you made earlier about having those healthy conversations around net proceeds, expectations, timing, what we're trying to accomplish. When you get into the transaction, then it's typically hiring the investment banker, the us, the Kips DeSantos of the world to quarterback that process that we talked about when we first started. We would bring in legal counsel immediately. We oftentimes, if they're not there before we get there, they're coming in right after us because we want to be partnered with them from the beginning. I mentioned data rooms earlier. I mentioned having them review your documents, your materials. We want good corporate hygiene when we start the process. And so we bring legal counsel in for those purposes. They will be there with us the entire way. The amount of work that they do will ebb and flow and mostly flow significantly in that back one third that back two months that we talked about earlier where you're working through purchase agreements and non-competes and employment agreements and disclosure schedules and rep and warranty insurance and everything that comes along with the deal. That's really where the legal counsel is the quarterback of a major part of the process. And so we view them as 50-50 partners and Getting a deal done, the lawyer doesn't do what the investment banker does and vice versa, but we can contribute and partner with each other to make sure you're getting the best solution. And then the fifth piece of it is accounting. Having an accounting firm at your hip that has done your tax work, that is familiar with your financial statements and financial systems, it's really super helpful to have an external resource there to help on some of those complex tax structures that I mentioned earlier and to be there for some of the other negotiations that go on outside of just purchase price. The balance sheet of the company and what is conveyed at closing is one of the big pieces of due diligence and transaction structure. And so having a good accountant on your hip or with the deal team there can be really important as well. Makes sense. I think one of the most daunting things when you start talking about attorneys is the bill because it's hourly and all that stuff. And I'll throw the accountant in there too. Any tips for how to maximize the efficiency do it in a cost-effective manner. Any tips or maybe there's not, but anything that you can pass on to somebody be like, hey, here are some important things to think about in order to not let your bills run away. Do this first. Be ready to go with this stuff. Proactively managing those relationships is the best path. Having the data room ready when they are hired is a great way to minimize the amount of time and effort and energy that goes into it. 
producing disclosure schedules is a big part of the purchase agreement. It's a long way of documenting what's in the data room or sort of what the company looks like. Our clients can do a lot of that work efficiently and effectively on their own if they're willing to, and you can manage down the cost or the burden that you put on the lawyers in that situation. The willingness to be engaged in the negotiation of the transaction agreement and to provide business mindset that says, I care about this, I don't care about that. I want this and I don't want that. And to be able to listen and to respond and provide input to legal counsel can help in that way. I think the fear that people have is that it's just an hourly running bill, basically. And we don't work with people that would treat it that way. The ultimate value of the lawyer, whatever it is, is worth it. There's no doubt about it. But you can maintain some control over that if you're willing to be actively engaged in that part of the process. And we try to do that as well. We try to help with that, but we're ultimately not the decision maker. And so we can say, Hey, don't worry about this or don't worry about that. But it's really, that's what we would do if we were in your shoes, you have to make that decision. And so being decisive, being engaged can really be a great way to manage any exposure that you might have on that side. Everybody loves a good story. As we get towards the end of this, do you have a really great story to share? It could either be like, hey, here's a really great success story or, oh my God, you should see the nightmare I dealt with way back when. Let's wrap up with a story. I don't know that I have a good a singular story that I'd be willing to leave out here on the air, but I'd characterize it like your golf game. It does not my matter. My golf game is horrible. So I know you're going with this now, right? It yeah. does not matter how you got on the green as long as you got there in regulation. There you go. No pictures <laughs> on the scorecard. That's, That's right. right. Exactly. And right. so that is... Most of the stories that we have in the trenches and most of the things that we're experiencing are just, you can't believe that somebody said something. You can't believe the decision that they made. You can't believe how long it's taking. You can't believe how complex it's been. And I mean, every deal is so unique and it's such a journey and it's so many ups and downs that isolating that one is almost impossible. I mean, it's just every day for us. You're just like, what's coming at us today? What's somebody (laughs) going to do? Why are they going to do it? And many of the stories offline sometime over a cocktail maybe. Or two. Are about the last mile or sort of the last days and a buyer doing something that causes a deal to go haywire or a client saying, despite everything that's been done, I don't want to do it anymore. And you're like, well, how could that be? How could you have spent all this time and you get there and you're like, You can't explain people. And that's really the best part about our job is that we get to work with a new set of people. Every time we close a transaction, you move on to the next one and you build great relationships and friendships, but it's a bit of a cold kind of break at the end there where you say, that was fun. We're on to the next one. You guys are going to go off and do your thing with your liquidity and your new owner or partner or whatever that might be. But it's just people are just at the root of all of it, the good and the challenges that we see along the way as well. Because it's a podcast, nobody can see this except the people sitting here in the room, but you're smiling the whole time you're telling me that story. So what that tells me is that Kevin DeSanto is one of the not miserable investment bankers out there in the entire world. You're having a really great time. You obviously really like what you do for a living or you wouldn't be sitting here smiling as you're telling all those stories. But as we wrap up here, as I watch you tell the stories from the past 40 minutes, what resonates with me is that you really love what you do. And I think a huge component that it has to do with the firm Kips DeSanto. So just tell people listening a little bit more about Kips DeSanto and why you have this big smile on your face 17 years later still. Yeah. Well, look, great partners is number one for us. And 
We started the business in 2007 and a number of us have worked together for a long time prior to that as well. And I've spent my entire professional career working side by side with Bob Kipps and it's been an awesome partnership and he's a great partner, somebody that has been an amazing part of my life. And the team that we've been able to build and we have co-founders and Mark Marlin and John M who are just amazing people that I always say our team just gets up and goes to work every day. Like that's what we think about. We love working with these companies. We love going through the ups and downs and having that experience. And so we've got a team of about 50 people now that are based in Tyson's corner that all get up and do aerospace, defense, government technology, sell side M&A transactions. And it's in the lower middle market. So think sub $500 million of enterprise value or purchase price. And so a lot of that is founder-owned businesses or private equity firms that have built great businesses that are going to have major liquidity opportunities and life-changing events for their partnerships and their investors. We're dealing with meaningful transactions to people. It's a little bit different than that mega deal, multi-billion dollar publicly traded company that has thousands of shareholders and a leadership team. We're typically influencing somebody's life or a number of people's lives in ways that are super material. And so the culture of our organization is to really take pride in that, to really be engaged in that, to really have, try to have fun doing a hard job. If you didn't enjoy it or didn't get some satisfaction out of the things that happen every day, I don't know how you would do it because you can't win every day. You can't close a deal every day. You can only do it after six to nine months of investment And you're at risk that entire time. And you have no idea where it's going to go or how it's going to come out. And so I think for us, our culture is also about preparation. And the way I described it earlier is a big part of what I think has allowed us to have some semblance of success here over the last 15 years is to engage in conversations with people, to help them think through things, to be there when they don't expect it, or to be a sounding board, to help folks make decisions on how they're going to spend their time or resources. And To do that in a completely detached, unengaged, or no economic relationship with the company for 5, 10, 15 years. Those are big commitments by us. We don't always even get selected at the end of that to be the advisor, but it's okay. It's just part of what you do is try to be a good partner in the ecosystem and the industry, and then good things tend to happen. And so we've been able to build the firm on that, invest a lot, learn a lot. I was say it's very self-serving to spend all that time with folks because we're getting better. We're learning more. We're seeing more as a result of that. And I think that's how our team really gets up and goes to work every day. It's very similar to same thing. You don't win them all. You learn along the way and the team and everything. But you mentioned, we talked about the process and everything. And then you just talked about your niche and we have a niche too, but does the process that you kind of laid out, does it materially change based on the size or what you just described to somebody who was listening to this and they've got a business that's smaller than what you deal with? Could they take away from this that even though my business is smaller than their niche, the process is probably going to be very similar. The things that you just talked about for the you know, past 45 minutes, are they all kind of applicable to even a smaller size deal? It's applicable to any size deal and any situation. Yeah, great. Even if you only have one buyer that you're considering or thinking about, you still want to structure it in that way. You still want to make sure you are prepared. You still want to make sure you solicit or elicit the offer out of them and then go through and actually execute on it. And keeping that sequencing is super important. And maybe it doesn't take nine months for a smaller deal. Maybe it's three months or four months, or maybe it's not a direct straight line. It might start here and take a break and then 
go a little bit further, but it generally is going to be those phases. And even if it's proposed to you that you don't have to think about it that way, it's usually in your best interest to do it that way. Because if you start negotiating with the buyer before you've built your forecast or thought about what your value proposition is, they're never going to get it right. They're never going to give you full value because they're not going to know what it is. And so it's our job or your job as a seller to make sure that you convey that. That's great. Well, thanks so much for coming in and spending the time with us. Really appreciate this. I will wrap up on this one note because you did talk about Bob Kipps before. You know, his golf game is not getting any better either. So he does play know, a lot I, more I, than I, I do. Uh, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, thanks a lot for coming out. It's great to do this. It's fun. I'm really glad that we met each other 16 years ago and we've stayed in touch and shared stories and things like that. But this is great because you're actually sharing your experiences with people who can take something away from it. And I think it's great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks, Kevin. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.